Lord, we've said it in a dozen ways this morning. We've sung it that we want to be holy, pure, faithful, righteous, not conformed to this age, transformed, renewed. And we say it again. If there's any in this room, Lord, that doesn't want that, I pray that by the time we're done, you will have landed on them with a sweet, powerful longing like they've never had before to be pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be holy, to be righteous, to be clean before you, to walk uprightly. So, Lord, now I pray that as that longing is increased, you would satisfy it because the Word of God has that power. Keep me faithful to the Word. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said. Your Word is truth. And so turn longings into reality now by Your Word, I pray. Through Christ. Amen. Let's start where we left off on June 26, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you remember I said this verse... Don't be conformed to the world is one side of a tension, a paradox in which all Christians live. The other side of the tension is found in texts like 1 Corinthians 9.22, where Paul says, I have become all things to all people. Don't be conformed to this world. Become all things to all people. Another place where it's found is 1 Corinthians 10.32. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So there's a tension here. Don't be conformed to this world. And don't give offense. Don't be conformed, but try to please Don't be conformed, but become all things to all people. I call these two sides of the Christian life the pilgrim side and the indigenous side. Remember those terms taken from Andrew Walls, professor of missions at the University of Edinburgh. Pilgrims, sojourners, the Bible calls us, exiles, they don't fit in. They're out of step. They're out of sync with culture. On the other hand, indigenous, taking on in some measure the culture. That's the tension we live in. I summarized it like this. 
If you only conform, then you're not salt and you're not light. And if you don't conform in some measure, the salt will stay in the salt shaker and the light will stay under a basket. Yes, we are indigenous, but we are strangers and pilgrims. Yes, we confront the culture. There is confrontation. There is also missionary adaptation. Yes, there is separation from the world, but also cultural participation. Yes, we are in the world, but no, we are not of the world. Yes, there is a sense and a measure in which we become all things to all people, but we are not to be conformed to this age. And I gave you four reasons why this tension exists. One, creation is the Lord's and it is fallen and in need of redemption. Two, Christ was incarnate, clothed in human flesh, one of us, and crucified as an unwanted pilgrim. Third, conversion to Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any works of the law, and immediately followed by a Holy Spirit-wrought process of sanctification whereby we become more and more like Him. And fourth, the kingdom of God is already here in Jesus Christ, and it is not yet here in consummation. And for those four reasons, we are pilgrims and we are indigenous. And we live with the tension. Tensions in families, tensions in the own, our own soul, tensions in churches, tensions in culture as to what this thing called Christianity and its radical witness should look like. Now, my aim this morning is to apply all of that to homosexuality. I must be brief and limited, and I can't say everything that needs to be said. And that makes me glad that there is an Internet and a website called DesiringGod.org because all my other sermons on homosexuality which say so many more things that I would like to say this morning, can be heard or read at no cost, go there. Especially go there if you're a member of this church to read this, the elder-approved position paper, just a sheet, called Beliefs About Homosexual Behavior and Ministering to Homosexual Persons. I, I love that document. I love the way it came into being. Joe Hallett, some of you remember Joe, he came out of homosexuality, had AIDS, lived with his 10 years, died of AIDS, married, and helped me craft that document so that it combined both biblical conviction, which he had very deeply, and sweet personal compassion, which he devoted his whole remaining life to while he had breath to those struggling with homosexuality. And now his wife goes on in that ministry. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I was on vacation and went to at least five different churches. And uh, 
on the July 4 weekend, heard a sermon that dealt with this in a way I would never want to deal with it. Which is why I stress that document and its flavor, its taste, its ethos, and the feel that it has about combining strong biblical conviction and sweet personal compassion towards those who struggle with this. Because they didn't get it. At least this pastor did not communicate it. And I just cringed in that service thinking, if anybody is here who's hanging in the balance, wondering, am I a homosexual person or am I a heterosexual person? That difficulty would have received no sense of empathy whatsoever. And I I hope that the person I have in mind in Scotland right now will give us permission to share with you something in the star this week because I, I just have so many testimonies and personal things I would love to say about this uh, and can't fit them all in but there was an email we got at Desiring God Ministries a couple of weeks ago from a, a fellow who who went online in a night when he was just about to go over the edge on a homosexual thing and he for some reason found us on the internet and listened to one of the homosexual sermons that you may have heard on the radio a few weeks ago where I was dealing with the issue. And the story he tells in that email of what that did for him and what it on continues to do, I want you to hear that story. Because it will give you hope in a lot of ways. And if any of you is here and in the secret of your heart, maybe you haven't told anybody, maybe only a few know, uh, you don't know who you are. I just want to encourage you, you you do not have to settle for an identity. One of the things Joe Hallett would never let me do is use the word homosexual as a noun. He insisted on using the phrase homosexual person. Person first. And this this thing raging inside, disordered, is not who you are. In Christ. That was a very powerful lesson I learned. I want you to learn it. It does not have to mark your whole being. So that's the balance I long for and call you to. And I'm going to say some things that the world simply does not believe is possible. And some of you may be in that category. I don't know. But here's the first one. I believe it is possible to describe homosexual behavior as sinful, perverse, abnormal, and destructive to persons and culture, and at the same time, both in our hearts and in our behavior, lay down our lives in love for homosexual people. The world does not think that combination is possible. In fact, I'm going to take it further and make it even harder to believe. I believe that biblically we must believe that homosexual behavior is sinful and harmful in order to love homosexual persons. Because 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, 
Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Therefore, if you deny the truth that homosexual behavior is sin and harmful, you cannot love homosexual people. No matter how tolerant, warm, or affectionate, or compassionate you feel, it won't be biblical love. And those are hard things for the world to believe. They will call this sermon hate speech. And someday, if God doesn't move, put me in jail for it. So, I will assert it. Not only is it possible to believe that, it is necessary to believe that if we are to love homosexual people. So, our goal at Bethlehem is the balance or better perhaps to just say the integration and combination of strong conviction about what God has said concerning homosexual behavior and deep, sweet, personal, risk-taking, lay-down-your-life compassion for those who may not want you at all. But some do. Now the question, why are you dealing with this here in your pathway through Romans, is answered by a phrase in verse 2. So if you're wondering, why are you talking about this now? There is a political motivation for this. I want to address the issue of marriage, and I'll get to it. But if you ask, why now? Why not later or earlier? It's because of verse 2 and a word in verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, and now note this phrase, by testing you may discern. That's one Greek word. By testing you may discern. And that word occurs again back in verse 28 of chapter 1, which is about homosexuality. That's the link that I saw and felt this is the time, this is the place. Paul forges the link. I don't have to do anything artificial here. It's there. Let's go back and read Romans 1, 28. In fact, I invite you to turn to Romans 1 because we'll spend the rest of our time there. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge, that's the word that is translated from the same Greek word as behind, by testing you may discern. It may seem strange to you that they translate it so differently, but if I paraphrase it, I think you'll see why. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, they, what ought not to be done. So I would paraphrase that something like this. Since they did not see fit by testing to discern, understand, know, acknowledge, and approve God in their minds. This is a very big word. It's a rich word. It's hard to translate a word like this in just one little word. It means not only test, and not only prove, and not only discern, but it means approve. It means the you come through a testing and proving process to an approving, and that's the idea here. They didn't approve to have God in their knowledge. Now, once you see that link, an amazing light is shed on the meaning of the renewal of the mind in Romans 12 too, isn't there? Be renewed in your mind. 
Have a renewed mind. Mind is where knowledge is. And you go back to 128 and it says they didn't want to have God in their mind, in their knowledge. They didn't approve. So I draw this out. At the foundation of discerning the will of God, you must discern the worth of God. And until you have a mind that discerns, tests, approves, embraces the worth of God as your infinite treasure, you won't make any headway to having a mind that can discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Foundational to discerning will is discerning worth. God's got to be the sun in the solar system of your life. If you are to discern the orbit of the planets of your emotions and your thoughts and your actions and your attitudes, only when that massive, I've been reading about it in World uh, National Geographic, only when that massive, weighty, blazing, bright, hot sun of glory is at the center of the solar system of your mind, will all the planets of your life get into right orbit. When he starts to be removed, and this dreadful exchange happens that Paul talks about, the planets start banging into each other. Marriage problems. Emotional problems, work problems, everything's to be chaotic and God belongs blazing at the center. Now, the most profound and remarkable thing to see is first that this is about homosexuality and then that it's about God. Let me just read verses 26 and 27 so that you see that it's about homosexuality. Who's he talking about when he speaks about giving them up in verse 28? Answer, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. That is unbelievably contemporary. The most profound and crucial thing to see now in relationship to homosexuality and having God in your mind as infinitely valuable is the link with this terrible exchange that happens in verse 23. Look at verse 23. They exchanged... It's just people outside Christ. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. You know the most common place in the modern world where that image is seen? In the mirror. And the sex of the person in the mirror 
is the same sex as the person in front of the mirror. And I'm pushing you to see the profundity of Paul's analysis here. The exchange of God for an image like myself. He traces out into homosexuality. And he uses the very word. Look at verse 25 to see it again in the spiritual sense. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. What lie? Me at the center. And worshipped and served the creature. And our favorite creature is the one in the mirror. Rather than the Creator. In other words, Paul treats the unnatural exchanged. They exchanged woman, exchanged man for another woman. Man exchanged woman for another man. Same word, exchange, exchange. And he's tracing it out from verse 23, 25 into 26 and 27 to show that the exchange at the level of God going out of the center and myself coming into the center has a cultural and personal fallout with an exchange of sexual orientation and passion and behavior. This is very profound and we need to understand the way Paul links it. Distortions at the theological level work themselves out eventually into distortions at the sexual level. And homosexuality is only one of them. So I conclude from this little analysis, and I invite you to the Internet to hear two messages on this text. I conclude that the renewed mind that Romans 12.2 calls for, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of the mind is first and fundamentally a reversal of the exchange of God for me or anything else. It's a reversal. The glory of God exchanged for the glory of man is the fundamental flaw of human minds. That results in all other bad thinking and bad behavior and bad feeling. That is the fundamental renewal that has to happen. And then, once God is back at the center with the blazing glory satisfying the soul, we can make some progress at discerning what is the will of God in sexual matters and all other matters, and we can begin to be conformed. And I just want to recognize that I don't have a simple snap-the-finger solution to our distorted emotions and affections in these matters. I don't think homosexuality is unique in its distortion of God's created order. There's so many others There's not a person sitting in this room who's not distorted in emotion, relation, mind, some of which will be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit in this life, and others, as it says in Romans 8.23, you will groan with to the grave. 
And it's the groaning and the battle and the holding on. Isn't it amazing that it says we, just think of it in terms of homosexuality, we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Feel the groaning right to the grave, but not yielding. I've got a flawed psyche. I've got emotions that are all over the map. They're genetically determined and they're family determined and they're situationally determined and I fight them all the time and expect to fight to my dying day against the parts about me I hate. So don't don't think that either it's a quick fix or it's not Christian. That's not the alternative. Now, I promised you that I would try to relate what we're saying here to the political situation in which we find ourselves, which is really quite a supercharged situation because not only do you have the marriage issue in front of us, but it's a political year in which uh, these candidates don't know what to do. Neither side knows what to do, what to say about these things. It is so volatile. And so I would like to say some things that might provide some help. There are two biblical reasons why there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. There are two biblical reasons why, and I do not say should not be, but cannot be. Reason number one. Jesus affirmed God's created will for marriage when he said this in Matthew 19.4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh so that they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's the Bible's teaching and assumption cover to cover. Marriage is one man, one woman becoming one flesh by covenant and sexual union. I'll say it again. The meaning and the definition of marriage is one man, one woman, becoming one flesh by covenant and sexual union. That is marriage. Anything else isn't marriage. That's reason number one why there can only be heterosexual marriage. And here's the second reason. The Bible is very clear in Romans 1, 26 and 27 that homosexual behavior is dishonorable, shameless, and contrary to nature. And the Bible is very clear that marriage is to be held in honor is not shameful, 
and is not contrary to nature. Therefore, they can't be the same. And for those two reasons, I say very clearly, unashamedly, without fear of any biblical contradiction, there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. No matter what the state says. And we'll go to jail before we'll say or act otherwise. Now, we live in a land that for the time being is a constitutional democracy. It's a remarkable experiment on the face of the world. Never was anything like this before in the history of the world. Before 1776. It may last, it may not. It may be the craziest experiment that ever landed on planet Earth to think that people could govern themselves. But it's, it's there for, for the time being. Call it a, a constitutional democracy, which means, let me read the first sentence of the Constitution to you because it's so shocking and so, so unheard of in history. You just take it for granted like there isn't any other way to be. And it never was heard of before it happened here. We, the people of the United States, and I'm going to leave out all the in order that's, though they're really quite remarkable. We, the people of the United States, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That's absolutely unheard of. We, the people, ordain our laws. We make our laws. Well, that's been the experiment for a couple hundred years. It's worked pretty well. The way we do it is we have uh, three branches of government. We have the legislative branch with the Senate and the House, which are charged to represent us. We elect those people. They go represent us, and then they, they make laws. That's all they do is make laws. And then we have the executive branch, and they're charged to see to it that those laws get carried out justly. And then third, we have the judicial branch so that when there are conflicts, there's a body that can provide the definitive interpretation of the Constitution as to whose claim to be legal is true. That's the way we do it. It's worked pretty good. Not perfectly by any means to establish justice for all, but pretty good. And now what has changed in the last 50 years, dramatically, it's been a longer time than that in coming. What has changed so dramatically that governs and, and defines the situation in which we find ourselves is the concept of meaning and truth. Once upon a time in America and around the world, when I was in high school and college, this was just changing. It's called existentialism in those days, the change. It's got other names now. Relativism, postmodernism. doesn't matter what you call it. It's been around forever. I'm reading the 4th century night right now to get ready for my talk on Athanasius at the pastor's conference. It's all over the 4th century. Unbelievable how the Arians argued for the non-deity of Christ in exactly the same ways that people argue today. There's nothing new under the sun. But what is remarkably urgent in the change is that once upon a time, historical scholars, 
judges and pastors were charged with the responsibility of finding fixed meaning in ancient texts. A historical scholar reading an essay, a judge reading the Constitution, and a pastor reading the Bible. Their job was to have integrity and go there and find, not create, find meaning that had been put there by authors. And then when they found them, to tell people, write books, preach sermons, issue law decrees to others, and then explain and argue on the basis of historical and grammatical basis why their seeing in the text of a meaning is in fact what's really there. That's gone. That's just gone. It's gone at the university. It's gone in the Supreme Court. And it's gone in thousands of seminaries and pulpits. And this is, I mean, great, big, remarkable hermeneutical books, historically, legally, theologically, will be written to justify the departure and make it sound, oh, so creative and new and fresh. And you, the simple lay people, know exactly what the truth is because you write letters to people. And you sign contracts on houses. And you know beyond the shadow of a doubt, the bottom of your heart, the top of your head, if somebody takes the word I write, no, and creatively makes it mean, yes, something fraudulent has happened. And it is incredible how in university scholarship and in legal talk and in theological writing and preaching, that simple reality is blown away. It is a simple matter of the golden rule. Will you treat an author the way you want to be treated? And if you write a note, I love you, please meet me at five. I'm sorry, you don't want that to be taken to mean, I hate you, don't come, and I'm not sorry. That's, that's lacking in integrity, that's fraudulent to take a document and pay no attention to what the author meant. Oh, this is huge in the world of American postmodernism today. I preach hoping and longing that you won't just make my words mean anything, but say, what did he really mean by that before you write me a note and say that cannot be? It may be dead wrong, but you got to know what I mean. And that's the way you want to be treated. I tell you, there are so many professors in universities that are going to have a hard time giving an account to the living God for why when they signed off on a contract at home, they expected the bank to hold fast to those words. And when they took an essay written by somebody in the 18th century, they didn't give a rip about what that person intended to communicate. Just turn it into a political thing to advance their cause. That will not cut it at the judgment day, believe me. Well, that's where we are. And now let's get right to the point of the Constitution 
The Constitution of the United States of America is being amended today. It is not a question of whether to amend the Constitution. The Constitution is being amended. The courts are finding there what never was there in any of the author's mind by the wildest imagination or stretch. And this kind of creative interpretation is producing, creating out of nothing, a definition of marriage that has never existed in the history of the world. (laughs) It takes your breath away. It absolutely takes your breath away. What is what can be done in public in America without anybody saying, the king has no clothes on. Are we going to stand in awe of this scholarship and this court? They've got no clothes on. And so the question is, will it be amended by the means established by the Constitution itself with three-fourths of the states giving assent, or will it be amended by the creative interpretation of the courts claiming to find there what never has been nor could be dreamed to be there by those who wrote this document. I do not have a lot of hope uh, on either side of those. And I just want you to know you're free to move on this So I ask in closing, what should Christians do? And my answer is, be a pilgrim and be indigenous. Live in that tension, and I'll try to say a guiding word on each side. First, be indigenous. That is, be involved in the process of lawmaking. You're indigenous. You're here. We should pray and work to keep our culture its customs, its laws, influence it, shape it, so that it reflects as much as possible the revealed will of God, even if that reflection is only external, only dim, and only embraced from unbiblical motives. I'll say that again. Be involved in the process of our democratic lawmaking with a view out of your worldview to shaping culture as best you can into conformity with the revealed will of God, even if it means that that will be a dim, only external and embraced with bad motives. Now, at this point, a person would ask, and they should, why do you impose your Christianity on everybody? That's the, that's the question you'll hear. It's calculated to use a negative word like impose. and it's just, The use of language is very finessed today to make true answers impossible many times. But there is an answer to this, a very easy answer, in fact. All laws impose convictions on everybody. 
all laws impose somebody's conviction on everybody in the culture. That's the meaning of law. <laughs> law means we impose on you not over 55. Cut the grass behind your garage. Don't shoot squirrels with a BB gun inside the city limits. There are all kinds of impositions on your behavior everywhere. Hundreds and hundreds of things constraining your life based on convictions that somebody was able to persuade the legislature to enact. Second statement. All convictions come from worldviews. All of them, not just Christians. All convictions that get enshrined in laws come from worldviews. So that somebody argues for one law or against the one law, they argue for reasons. They give reasons. Those reasons are in their worldview. They say that's a bad law because, and the because is their worldview. Now here's the key. To vote for a law is not a vote for the worldview behind it. That's absolutely key to realize in our democratic pluralistic process. Otherwise, this experiment called America will be impossible. Let me give you an illustration. There is a group called Atheists for Life, meaning they're pro-life. They might argue something like this. I'm not sure how they argue. This is just my guess. If I were an atheist, this is the way I'd argue. I would say, since there is no God, the highest, most sacred value in the universe is human life. Therefore, don't kill it in the womb. And then along comes a Christian who says, there is a God in the universe. And we are created in His image, and therefore humans are of tremendous significance in the world in their capacity to worship God. Don't kill them in the womb. And they both want exactly the same law, coming from radically different worldviews. And a vote for that law is not a vote for either worldview. That's the way laws in America come into being. A convergence of enough varied pluralistic groups thinking that a behavior would be good for the culture and suddenly there's a law. And those worldviews informing that convergence are all over the map. And the point is, be involved at that level. Close with a pilgrim word. While you're involved at that level, speak your worldview. Jesus must be spoken about. Christ crucified must be announced. Let's talk about what governs us. And when somebody says, well, why should I vote for that? Just because you think it's true because there's a God. I say, that may mean that may not be why you should vote for it. I'm commending this out of my worldview. I think you will find over time in history that two men, two women killing babies, this is not going to be good for us. There are so many articles. This is why I'm not taking this approach this morning. I've read so many articles that have such good, 
arguments as to why the impossibility of homosexual marriage would just be bad for us. People from all angles are writing why it would be. But I want to say, a pilgrim will say, I'm a Christian. And God said, don't do this. Somebody in our cultures got to say, God says. No matter whether people believe you or not, but God says. And so pilgrims do that. And then, lastly, I want to try to articulate the flavor of your political engagement. Because I'm not happy with a lot that I see in the evangelical world's engagement politically. So let me try to close with a taste and a flavor of what I think pilgrim involvement in politics, pilgrim indigenousness will feel like, look like. We do not smirk at the misery or the merrymaking of immoral culture. We don't smirk at the misery or the merrymaking of immoral culture. We weep. Know any good conservative talk show hosts that weep? Name one. Being pilgrims does not mean being cynical. That's the name of the game. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. It tries to preserve, savor, and when it can't, it weeps. Being Christian pilgrims in American culture does not end our influence. It takes the swagger out of it. There's just so many strutting conservatives, including our president and strutting Democrats, can say no wrong, can make no mistake. I've got all the answers. Strut, strut, strut. That is not the demeanor of an evangelical pilgrim who knows he's fallen, knows he's broken. It is possible to lead in strength with humility, a sense of brokenness, a sense of fallibility. We don't get cranky when evil triumphs. We don't whine when things don't go the way we want them to in our culture. It isn't our culture. Heaven is our culture. We're not hardened with anger. We understand what's happening now. Why? Because we saw it happen 2,000 years ago. We hear, just like they heard for three centuries, the imperial words of the Lord Jesus, If they hated me, they will hate you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be like your Father in heaven. He makes the sun rise on the good and the evil and He causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. If you love only those who love you, what do you do more than others? Even the tax collectors do that. If you greet only your brothers, what do you do more than others? Even the Gentiles do that. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. His way was so different than the seeming pervasive evangelical conservative strutting swaggering cocky cynical way 
help me create this. I mean, there are many of you who are way ahead of me on this. I have to bonk myself over the head all the time in order to live up to my own standards. Back in those days in the first century, it was a time for indomitable joy. Broken-hearted, indomitable joy. Joy because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's going to bring it out, folks. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Only peace, only justice, beauty, purity, everything we sang for is going to come true someday on planet earth with Jesus reigning with absolute joy over everything beautiful. That's joy and brokenhearted because we're not there yet. We're both heaven bound and earth caring, aren't you? Not just heaven bound and to hell with the earth. Jesus will not meet you at the gate if that's been your attitude. He won't meet you gladly. You will say, why? That was my earth. I had given you my will. I had given you my law. I know it can never be perfect, but I sent you there to be salt and light. Brokenhearted joy. Long-suffering mercy. So, last sentence. If that's going to happen, if we're going to be engaged as pilgrims and indigenous, we've got to have a renewed mind. The essence of which and the foundation of which is reverse the exchange of the glory of God for what you see in the mirror. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray again now for those in the room who struggle with who they are in terms of sexual identity. And I plead, Lord, that you would grant them the spiritual ability to say, my essential identity is in Jesus Christ. I am a new creature I am in Christ all that I should be. And I will in practice become more and more that way. Even if I must groan with the conflicts of my heart till the day I die. And then to die will be gain. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. Don't let them grow weary. In the battle, I pray all of us have battles. I need your help in mine. They need your help in theirs. Lord, we want to be whiter than snow because the great old prophet said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow.